0: This is Chip and Durham,
1: Erica and Edmonton, and Shannon and Durham.
0: And welcome to episode 43 of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5 Comes the Inquisitor. Just one more episode after this one, y'all, and season two of Babylon 5 is going to be in the can. I can't Whoa. believe it. That's crazy. That's nuts. It's like we've been doing this thing for two years. <laughs>
2: Oh, Go my God! Stop talking like that.
0: <laughs> uh, are you accusing me of dating us and making us feel old? I
2: just yeah, that that was kind of, that kind of came as a little bit of a shock to me. I'm surprised it's been so long. I still feel like the young spring chicken I was when we got started two years ago.
0: <laughs> uh, well, you know, when you've been in a relationship as long as we have, you need to do some things to sort of make it fresher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you maybe need to bring some people into it And so we are going to introduce a couple of uh, ringers to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5 Joining us for this episode some newly minted Babylon 5 fans of our acquaintance Lynn and Michael Damian Thomas, welcome to uh, the Audio Guide to Babylon 5
3: Hello, it is great to be here We are finally on my favorite podcast other Your than favorite we... podcast? Whoa. Oh,
1: shucks Yes <laughs>
3: Well, barring, barring the ones we all other work on. The check's in the
1: mail. Yes. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Lynn and
0: Michael Damien Thomas, you are the editors of Uncanny Magazine. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that?
3: Sure. Uh, yes, we are the editors-in-chief and publishers of Uncanny Magazine. It is an online science fiction fantasy magazine.
4: And uh, we publish six issues a year. The way that it works is that our subscribers get all the issues up front. And uh, folks who want to read along on our website get half the issue up front and the other half of the issue the next month. So there's always fresh content every month on our website. And uh we put out ebooks in every available format and you can subscribe to us through weightless books or Amazon.
3: With many fine um science fiction fantasy authors writing short stories, essays, poems, and we have a podcast.
4: Yes, we do. It's called, oddly enough, the Uncanny Magazine Podcast. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine that.
0: <laughs> and it's a an immaculately produced, uh professional podcast <laughs> that um you know, it it's just whoever's putting that thing together
3: is yes. just really, really talented, I think.
2: I'm blushing I, over here, you guys. Yes. <laughs> oh, no, no, wait.
3: I'm not it, saying the podcast community is incestuous. <laughs> right.
0: But, uh, yes, one of the one of the two producers of the podcast happens to be our very own Erica. Good job, Erica.
2: Thanks. And actually, my co-producer happens to be our control group, my spouse, Stephen, who we may have heard from time to time if you listen
3: to the podcast regularly. So, yep. And and Lynn and Erica otherwise have no podcast knowledge of each other. No,
4: not at <laughs> all. It's Mm-mm. not like we spend an inordinate amount of time together on Verity. No.
3: <laughs> so now all of a sudden we're
0: in the same virtual room talking about Babylon Five, and yes. I've got to I've got to ask uh, you two. You two are both new to Babylon Five. I'm curious as to how you discovered Babylon Five, why you decided to start watching it now. Uh, what your opinion of the show was before you started watching it, you know, based on received wisdom. Mm-hmm. And uh, without spoiling future episodes, because we are whipcrackers <laughs> when it comes to spoilers well, uh, before I've... the jump gate section,
3: what do you think of the series now? Well, I was kind of hoping to test all your editorial skills today. <laughs> I uh, I'm sorry, Lynn, Michael, we can't, uh, <laughs> we've can't. we lost a connection with you. Uh, okay, I... During during the '90s, um, it was difficult to get. I mean, essentially, as much as a geek as I was in the '90s, it was hard for me to keep up with like new television. So ba- when Babylon 5's first couple of seasons came out, I missed it. And then I started to we started to have the evangelical friends, bless. Which mm-hmm. in retrospect, I get it. But in the '90s, it's tough because I, I think you know it, we're hearing all these great things about the show, but you're also hearing the thing of. But it's an arc, and you need to know all this stuff, and it's hard to jump in, which obviously everyone on this podcast is disproving, because you Mm -hmm. can jump in, with given the right data. But uh, Lynn had a friend at work.
4: Yes, I had a dear friend at work uh, at my previous job who is a diehard Babylon 5 fan and who had been telling us about the series. And at that point, I had been kind of like, yeah, yeah, we'll get around to it. Yeah, yeah, we'll get around to it. And then our uh, our managing editor, Mitchie Trota uh, for Uncanny Magazine. Yeah, it's
3: like, and then a decade passes. And then a decade passes.
4: <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, Michi is also a huge BAB5 fan. And so what basically happened was that I mentioned in passing that my dear friend from my previous job had donated a bunch of BAB5 materials to the science fiction collection that I curate in my day job. And Mitchie went, BAB5? You know of BAB5? Have you seen it? And we said, well, no, we haven't. And she, and she literally, the next time we came, she came to our house, brought her DVDs and was like, here, you need these. <laughs> yeah. So I'm
3: <laughs> familiar
0: with this strategy.
4: Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> It's a public service, really.
4: It is. It yeah. is.
3: So yeah, so that is the point we started to watch, and um, we got. I mean, I won't say that we marathoned like the kids do, where it's over like a twenty-four hour period. But life,
4: life doesn't really allow for that for us. But we did run through it in about a five or six month period. The whole thing. Wow. Something like that. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was. Two well, and three episodes a night, nightly for a while. Well,
3: we are still wow. short the last movie on the movie yeah, box we're set. we're not
4: quite complete. But I can tell you that I have already sent the requisite email to my first friend who told us about BAB5 and was like, you were right. You were absolutely right. <laughs> I'm so sorry I didn't believe you. <laughs> well, <laughs> so that, that, that fan-ish experience has already yeah. happened where I have apologized for not believing her the first time.
3: Though so I, will, I will say, I, you know, based on what I saw, I mean, and just what people were saying, I didn't think this would be a show for me. And as soon as, and we are one of the, we are those weird people who actually fell in love moment one, season one. Just, wow. yeah, it, I mean, we had had, okay, to be fair, we did see the pilot from another friend, like around when it came out on DVD. And that did, that didn't do it for us. <laughs> but as soon as we started watching season one, I think it's the mixture. Being a classic Doctor Who fan means that you're willing to kind of wave a hand at a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. and look for the goodness in things <laughs> and there was something that was just so charming right out of the gate of babylon five warts and all that yeah her we...
4: name is ivanova <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes yes but even even like the sinclair perf- you know in, in garibaldi i mean everything was just even things that were not quite working we found charming and the alien actors we were all like wow you know these the performances they are given are are something else in the middle of this, even and
4: something else in a very good sense, in a
3: good sense versus um, especially some, as yeah. the
4: first as the first season was finding its feet performance wise. Um, much of the time, we felt like you would get stronger performances from the actors under prosthetics than the actors who got to use their whole faces. Um, so that was one of those things where because we're doctor who fans we can we can appreciate the difficulty of giving those kinds of performances under prosthetics in a way that maybe not everybody who sees a lot of tv that doesn't do prosthetics would um so yeah we just we just ate it up, yeah, and then right and, away, and, and then I as, started you know I started creating ships in my head all over the place, <laughs> as one does, so it was fine
3: and and then by you know second season when you know, since we can at least spoil up to this episode, when things start rolling and it become goes from a show where you're you're forgiving its little problems and enjoying the charm of a space show and becomes that oh mfg show of what's going to happen next and oh wow that as as the the story arc really kicks in the story arc kicks in and holds together so well and just drags you and
4: well and the other part of it is by season two all of the actors have relaxed they have (laughs) they have all sort of gotten to the point where for the most part they're comfortable with Their characters, and they are comfortable in how they are pitching their performances. Um, And then, of course, you add uh, Bruce Boxleitner, who is like the world's most experienced television actor, into the fray. And everybody's performances just kind of breathe in a way that they didn't really get a chance to do in the first season. So um, they just they they hit second season kind of they hit the ground running.
3: Which is which is why, you know, when we hit second season, especially in our watch, by that point, it was okay, we're watching the next episode. Okay, we're watching the next episode. (laughs) That's
0: when the momentum kicked in. Yes. Which, yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well,
3: we try not to be super
0: topical on this podcast because we want it to be like a permanent guide to the show. Right. But at the time that we're recording this, uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens has just come out, you know, this little indie movie. And... um, (laughs) People have been really agog over it, and as you do, you start talking about all the other Star Wars movies, and you throw shade at the prequels, and you throw shade at George Lucas. When you're watching the Babylon 5 DVDs, Mm -hmm. you are seeing some serious limitations as far as not only special effects, but also technology and the ability to produce, you know, a watchable DVD of something that was intended to be filmed in widescreen and the special effects were supposed to, you know, be upscaled and all this other stuff. And it didn't really happen. And I'm just curious uh, as to what you all think. Star Wars fans have been clamoring for the original edits of the movies to come back out, you know, so you don't have to go to the Library of Congress to watch them. Does Babylon 5 need to sort of remain that sort of pristine, or do we really need special editions of this show?
3: Okay, I am I am going to be kind of the contrarian compared to a lot of other people, because you know, I, I see that, you know, because we're also, you know, right now we're living through these beautiful, you know, these beautiful HD versions of Star Trek coming out, and being a Doctor Who fan, uh having lived through some classic series DVDs where they tried to special edition them up, I I my personal preference is I want to see the show as it was broadcast. And I want to have that experience. If anything, I I would rather have a Babylon 5 edition come out where they even though it was shot in widescreen, obviously there was a thousand technical issues where it wasn't really I mean, the where the special where the CGI isn't matching with that widescreen. I'd rather see it in pan and scan. I'd rather see it in four three. I'd rather. I want. I want to capture that experience of what it's like to live in the nineties. In, in you're fact, just,
4: you're just nostalgic.
3: I am nostalgic. Mm-hmm. I want to be on on a, on a curved tube TV of twelve inches <laughs> in someone's basement, no. No. enjoying I, I, it with friends. <laughs> see,
4: and, and I, I of course come to this from the the archives perspective because that's my day job. Um, so I'm someone who thinks that it's it it's it's and it's not or. I think that that the original version of the show as broadcast should stand as a testament to what was produced at the time. And I think that um, this is a show that is ripe for the either the ability to just remake it from whole cloth with today's technology, because wouldn't that be cool? Or to do it, give it the Star Trek treatment of, you know, souping it up a little bit for a modern audience. I would be okay with either of those as long as the original version is still extant and available. Um, yeah. I, I don't think that, that it has to be either. I well, think you can do both. I
3: think the current DVDs are odd in that it's like they did a slight upgrade by making it widescreen as it was shot, but they didn't rework some of the other oh. aspects that would have made it, especially yeah. with the effects.
4: But it's it's really not any different than the difference between the filming schedule for Xena in the first season and the second season well, where they, they switched film types in between seasons. Yeah, but
3: you know what happened with the yeah. the CGI with this, yeah. correct? A couple of thoughts about that at the beginning of the
0: season because we went to elaborate lengths to keep steven from seeing the wrong uh the wrong Ah, opening credits right so we shannon and i found our old vhs tv rips and digitized that and sent that to erica who (laughs) showed steven what it was like to watch babylon 5 on tv
3: right
2: it almost broke him. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was not a fun experience for anybody. No. <laughs> no. It was not a positive? nope Stephen, Stephen that uh, it was it was for me because I have that kind of nostalgia too I was like this is what it's supposed to look like and Stephen was just not having any of it so so <laughs> I, I so I'm with I'm with Lynn I feel like there should there should be both because I think uh, the number of people who are going to who would who would jump on board and enjoy the show seeing it the way that it, mm-hmm. it was or seeing it even the way that it is right now is kind of limited I feel like I feel like you guys are special uh, a lot of people these days especially younger folks who didn't have to live through all the crappy special effects that we did. Um, (laughs) They're just not going to know what they're looking at. It was cutting edge at the time. Uphill,
4: through the snow, both ways. (laughs) On my Amiga. Well, (laughs) I I think that that you can have both versions because the people who are the hardcore purists, the folks who just want to recreate that experience in the 90s, they're going to keep the classic series all for themselves, and then they're going to buy the reworked season so that they can use it to evangelize. It's going to be similar to the Firefly effect, where when the DVDs of Firefly as a series came out, People bought two copies, one for themselves and one to loan out to everyone they had ever met. Yeah, Mm -hmm.
3: I I think one, and this isn't a current issue with becoming a Bab 5 fan, is that I every time a friend would say, "I love Babylon 5," then you would get all the, "But you need to get through this, and this isn't quite good, (laughs) and you know, you know, all the apologizing for season one." That that fans seem to do well.
4: In fairness, people do it for other series too. I mean, yeah. there are plenty of people who, we, when you ask them about Xena Warrior Princess*, they'll say start with season two, and people will tell you the same thing with *Blackadder* for that matter. Or no, or, or
0: *Doctor Who*. Two words: or *Doctor Who*. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, to sort of smoothly, he hopes, segue into *Comes the Inquisitor*. <laughs> this be- this becomes really apparent when you're watching this episode uh, because you've got the filmed sections, the pure filmed sections uh, mm-hmm. look better than they ever looked on television because it's it's the you know it's the film resolution and you've got Delin walking into the room where she's going to be interrogated by Sebastian and it looks really interesting and then she's looking really really fuzzy and you just know that there's going to be a video effect coming up soon. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in, this, in this shot, because that stuff wasn't to film. You know, it's video compositing and it looks horrible. So the current DVDs of Babylon 5 look simultaneously better and worse than they did. Yeah. And that's maddening to me. <laughs> maddening. Okay. Okay. okay, Comes the Inquisitor. So uh, coming back to Comes the Inquisitor, let's remind everybody uh, where we are in the story and what you would have known at the time. The Babylon Project was intended to be a united nations in space, building the peace between five major governments and a host of alien races. Problem is... A war's been brewing in the background as some very big bads called the Shadows are about to make their move. Membari Ambassador Delin has brought Earth Alliance Captain John Sheridan into the fight as a leader of the Rangers, who are in the very early stages of building a defense against this ancient enemy, which is apparently necessary because out of all of the ancient races that stood against the Shadows ages ago, only one remains, the Enigmatic Vorlons, represented by Ambassador Kosh. Meanwhile... Another war has just ended as the Centauri Republic has devastated the Narn regime, leaving former Ambassador Jakar powerless and desperate. In this episode... Kosh makes Delin submit to an interrogation by a mysterious inquisitor named Sebastian, a moralistic and cynical Englishman from the 1800s, pressed into service by the Vorlons and then dumped into suspended animation until needed again. D'Lynn could walk away at any time, but endures physical and emotional torture as Sebastian attempts to convince her that she's got a messiah complex rather than holding the interests of others. Delin’s aide Lanier begs Sheridan to stop Sebastian, But that merely puts Sheridan into Sebastian's hands as well until Dillon offers her life for Sheridan's. This selfless act stops Sebastian short and convinces him that both Dillon and Sheridan are, to quote, the right people in the right place at the right time. Meanwhile, Jakar is trying to rally the Narn into an effective resistance, but his people on B5 aren't certain he's got the influence. Jakar asks Sheridan to get a message through the Centauri blockade to and from Narn, a job that Sheridan delegates to the Rangers. The Rangers succeed, and the Narn line up behind Jakar. Oh, and Sheridan figures out that Sebastian was Jack the Ripper all along. No big deal. (laughs) <laughs> and that was Comes the Inquisitor, the penultimate episode of Season 2 of Babylon 5. You know, this is possibly the Star trek episode that we've had in a long time. Um, the A-plot and B-plot structure that Erica and Shannon and I have been talking about this season that was sort of part of the Season 1 formula and we started to get away from. But it's back, and we've also got a wild antagonist from Out of Time, which is so atypical for Babylon 5. Uh, I'm going to ask the heretofore silent Shannon Sutterth, did that work
1: for Babylon 5 this time around? I had no trouble with it because it just didn't strike me that way. We, we've sort of gotten into building on this once everything's sort of begun to coalesce around um, a couple of main storylines that, you know, and these both of these plots just continue in their parallel pathways of um, continuing those two stories. So, you know, the A plot B plot thing really didn't occur to me this time. Um, you know, that, that worked for me because we're just adding on what's going on with the Narn and the Centauri after the long Twilight struggle. You know, what's going on now that this war, this great war that's coming, um, apparently there's something else that D'Lynn has to do before uh, the Vorlons are ready to commit totally. It's, you know, like they haven't, you know, been committed already. <laughs> uh, so, it didn't even occur to me, um, and and it worked just fine.
2: Shannon, you just made me feel so much better because I was <laughs> I was I was looking at the notes that Chip sent around, and it and it says you know return to a plot b plot structure, and I was like, what? It it did, and then I stopped and thought about it, and I was like, oh yeah, I guess I guess it totally does, but it did not strike me that way either. So I feel a lot less dumb knowing that it, <laughs> knowing that it didn't hit you that way too.
0: I, I'm i not seeking to make anyone feel dumb. No, no, no. Not just... that
2: not that, that was your intent, but I was just – I was kind of surprised that I hadn't even noticed. And I think that it's probably a, a testament mm-hmm. to the, the direction of this episode and, like Shannon said, the fact that everything is kind of rolling in this season so far. So it just feels like, yes, there's an A-plot and there's a B-plot, but each of those feels like a very smooth continuation of a bunch of stuff that's happening – or that was happening throughout all the other episodes in this season, so it 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 wasn't like an a plot b plot episode where it's you know brand new you know so and so appears and does this thing yes, sebastian is brand new and he's a so and so but uh but he is is part of this big conspiracy it's kosh that's brought him in it's not it's not completely random new character in a plot and completely random new situation in b plot they're they're both still part of the overall arc
0: so it's kind of like a Season one structure, but because the arc is still moving, that it doesn't feel like it.
1: Yeah, that <laughs> yeah, w- they, they just they're they're both seamlessly part of um, the structure that's that we're that we've seen being built this this series. It's not you know random happening. Um, Like a lot of season one was felt like as they started putting the foundation together and they were it it felt like they were building from the four different corners towards a center all at the same time in the first season. And now that the foundation's laid, you know, we're seeing walls go up and it's um, the the picture is a whole lot clearer. So it all integrates.
0: Well, but it's still still to my mind, it's, it's it's very different. I mean, it's Jack the Ripper comes to Babylon 5. What? I'm sorry, around around uh, around uh, The Coming of Shadows, if somebody told me that there was going to be a, an episode future, uh, uh, several down the road where Jack the Ripper comes to Babylon 5, I would have been like, that's going to be stupid and awful.
1: <laughs> well, to be fair, I mean, we don't find out, you know, specifically, you know, at least in the script until the end. Mm-hmm. You know, until then, he is this, you know, random person that, you know, what bugged me this time around watching the episode especially was, like I said a minute ago – why are the Vorlons, you know, doing this now? What, what is it about this time that has made them decide that, you know, we really need to triple check about Delenn? This, we've had hints, you know, in previous episodes that the Vorlons have, been, you know, had their eye on her for a long time. Why, you know, why all of a sudden now? Do they feel the need to do this? That's what was sort of bugging me in the back of my head this whole episode more than okay. anything else. Well,
0: before we get into the the details, there, yeah. I did want to check in with uh, our semi-control group, okay. uh, Lynn and Michael. Um, when when you got to this
4: one, was it jarring for me? It wasn't actually that jarring because the thematics of the episode still fit in nicely with both the season long, the season long arc I was expecting and within the context of the episode itself. It didn't feel so much like there was an A plot and a B plot, more like an A1 plot and an A2 plot, because the thematics of both of those plots tie together so wonderfully and so clearly because you're asking questions about identity and you're asking questions about... Um what is right and what is wrong, and who determines that? and can people be all good or all evil and because you have those questions happening in both plots simultaneously, they felt to me as though they were of a piece
3: like like one of those beatles double a sides kinda can't choose can't choose can't choose what the real a plot is don't need to i i think i mean the here is Jack the ripper showing up i mean i mean the tonally it was a lot i mean the series had already been getting darker at this stage and it is getting darker this did move it to a place I was unexpected I wasn't expecting certainly not from cuz also I mean, coming from the Vorlons and Kosh it's very jarring to have them use somebody like Jack the Ripper
4: well the notion that torture is how you determine whether someone is worthy is kind of terrifying yeah
3: so so that was the jarring part sorry
4: mhm
3: mhm yeah and and speaking of
0: that as the subtext of the coming war has been coming up and the alliance between the Minbari and the Vorlons has been revealed and we've gotten all the backstory uh, that's been coming up. We've seen in this series up till now this relationship between D'Lynn and Kosh that's, you know, started with a bow back in the gathering and then led on to her having Kosh reveal himself and things like that. But now D'Lynn seems very subservient to Kosh and that does seem that does seem strange doesn't it
2: well i don't know about that because we haven't really seen Delenn and Kosh interact all that much since she's gone through her transformation. And we keep talking about how she just doesn't quite seem like the same character now that she is partially human. She's sort of been, you know, rocked back both politically because of the way that her own people are seeing her and personally she just doesn't, it seems like she just doesn't have her mojo. So to me, it felt like it was perfectly natural for her to to seem much more subservient to Kosh because here is this, you know, authority figure of sorts who is still treating her like she's, you know, one of one of the team. So it it seems like it makes perfect sense for her to to just really go along with what he is saying so she doesn't alienate the last person who is is kind of on her side in a in a position of authority.
4: Well I think it's also a function of she needs to demonstrate that she trusts Kosh because she's surrounded mm-hmm. by people who don't quite trust her right now.
3: Yeah I think I think it does get back to after the transformation, so much has been taken away, and stripped away from Dalin that, that, while having the weight of the knowledge that there is this massive thing coming, with the shadows and Kosh is, many respect. I mean, this is the last true friend, ally that she has in the coming battle, other than Lanier and other, you know, people people on Dalin's you know, of her stature in the coming war
4: mm-hmm.
3: you know maybe there will be others who are turning into that but at that moment she she is so isolated
4: They're... this is this is like the worst regeneration ever really
3: <laughs> <Nerd>.
4: <laughs> doctor who nerd yes and
0: <laughs> <laughs> i
4: mean in a sense it does feel kind of like a regeneration gone wrong i mean because it's once she comes once she comes out of the cocoon everybody around her has taken a step back and is trying to figure out who this new version of Delenn is and whether they like her better or the, or worse or the same and how to treat her. And she's wandering around trying to protest that she's fundamentally the same, except she's not. And how do you function with someone who has transformed that significantly and is claiming that they're the same person except when they're claiming that they're not? I mean, it's 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 challenging, I think, in any... Even any organizational structure um, to have someone who is trying to fulfill a specific role and is trying to take a, a approach that's sort of 90 degrees further away from where they were. But still arguing when it's convenient that they're the same person. It's it's gotta be challenging for everyone she's working with mm-hmm. to figure out how exactly to handle this.
3: While she's playing cosmic games. I mean yeah. this is cosmic chess going on and you know with, with Rangers and Vorlons and Shadows and all this stuff that and and she's not letting in new people quite yet till she feels they're ready and yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's gotta be uh, really depressing to find out that even Kosh doesn't know if he trusts her Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's that and that's the that's the big shocking point i suppose for her that makes her go through all of this um the structure of the interrogation and what sebastian puts delin through uh j michael straczynski uh made a big deal about having graduated with degrees in uh, i believe psychology and sociology you know he was um he was aware of some therapeutic techniques, including something called the synon game, which um I did a little bit of Wikipedia research, which sometimes would not you you know Wikipedia and research are sometimes oxymorons, but <laughs>
3: oh no we 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 go down that path ourselves many times yeah
0: but uh the um the the gist of it is uh the synon the synon game is basically. You ask ask somebody a barrage of questions, and you never let them give the same answer twice, and you try to strip people down to their core, Um, and uh, it's pretty controversial, actually. I never entirely had the sense of whether JMS uh, was in favor of this or not, but it was very much on his mind when he structured uh, this interrogation. Um, Shannon and Erica, you know, what kind of feels did you have during this part of the episode? How Dillon was being treated, you know, know, both as a character and um, as a, you know, in world and out of world, basically, Uh, because in some respects, this was really uncomfortable to watch.
1: Well, yeah, I totally agree with the idea that, yes, it was very uncomfortable to to watch um, whether you thought that the Vorlons, you know, needed to do this or not. Um, But the technique seemed to make sense. If what the Borlons were after were getting getting to the core of Delenn's motivations, you know, make, assuring themselves that she was doing what she was doing to help them for the right reasons, not just because she was helping, you know, that if, for whatever reason, it matters to the Vorlons why the people who are helping them are helping them. And to continually berate, you know, you, you have to come up with a different answer each time. It, it makes you think, it makes you examine, it makes you really turn yourself inside out. It seemed to be the most effective thing for them to do, if that's what their, if that's what their point was.
2: Yeah, I I did find it hard to watch. I I found myself, you know, it, it's just sort of in world just hating Sebastian. Oh, it was so frustrating. I really felt like like she did because it was just, I mean, especially the first time I saw this episode, but even now rewatching it, I can I can capture that feeling of frustration of like, what the heck are you looking for, guy? Because, mm-hmm. you know, I I don't know how I would have answered any of those questions any better than than Delen did going in. And it just I, I I think that she is the character so far that I relate to most a little bit, especially this season, you know, trying to find her footing and, and becoming half human and stuff. So I've really kind of put myself in into the show, you know, looking at it through her eyes a lot. And that made this episode extra hard because, you know, she's my character point of reference. And here she is being tortured by somebody who is not It's just it's not clear what he wants. And I mean, I guess from the Vorlon's perspective, I I do kind of understand why they need some sort of reassurance. Because, yeah, I mean, she did turn herself from a Minbari into a partial Minbari, partial human, whatever it is. I mean, that's that's a big thing. And if somebody is willing to go to those ends, then maybe it is an important thing to determine whether she's doing it for the right reasons. You know, if she, you know, by the end of the episode, we realize that Sebastian is trying to find out if she's in it for the glory or, you know, the statues and all that nonsense. And and yeah, if somebody had gone through all of that simply because they wanted to be put up on a pedestal and revered forever and ever, that could very easily go wrong somewhere down the line. If you've got somebody who is, you know, it's like somebody who's only in it for the money, that's that's not so helpful because they could, they could be lured away by somebody else who's offering her more money or more you know more statues or whatever it happens to be so finding out that that she really is uh doing it from a place of self-sacrifice not self you know aggrandizement is i guess an important thing for the vorlans to know but it didn't make it any easier to watch her going through that experience um but by you know i when i came out the other side of it i really sort of did feel a, a little bit of you know catharsis and relief and like yeah she is the right person yay so it was it was all good in the end but it was hard to hard to go through
0: well it's hard to go through particularly because you know i get, i would assume that this synonym game um is a therapeutic thing that was done by people who who at least in theory had the person who's being interrogated or whatever had their interests in heart And
3: I don't get that same sense from Mm -hmm. Sebastian. Mm -hmm. This is not (laughs) a nice guy. Just the opposite. I mean, if anything, I found the entire exercise, I mean, it was very hard to watch. It was hard to watch the first time. Still, even knowing what was coming, it was hard to watch the second time. But it also just felt so cruel, arbitrary, and controlling. Mm -hmm. I never, even after the reveal of what the point of the test was, it still feels like just a... Less about a test and more about showing yes, we are in charge here, mm,
1: yeah, exactly,
3: and you will do it for our
1: reasons. it's which needlessly cruel,
3: it's
0: needlessly cruel, it's mm. needlessly cruel, um, and that is the point in the story, but i I think it's I think it's a fair question to ask is it is this good uplifting television to actually watch somebody suffer these kinds of mind games
2: mm, uplifting no, definitely not good yes, I think. Good. I don't think those two, I think they're not mutually exclusive.
1: Yeah, I mean if you want to, you know, the way to advance a character's development is not to have nice, shiny, happy things happen to them. You you put them through conflict. You put them through tests and, you know, and then there's more to explore and there's more to the character uh, and they've got more experience. So.
2: Yeah, and I think this is also uh, you know, kind of like what Michael was saying. This is Almost as much of an interesting view into the Vorlon thought process as it is into Delenn's motivations. Mm-hmm.
4: It's also the thing where I, I think it's important to sort of consider the notion that watching people being tortured in any way, shape or form for entertainment is a problematic thing in a general sense. Um, making entertainment out of people's pain is not true. something to be taken lightly. Um, it's very, very serious. Um, And that it's something that should be taken seriously and that um, the ultimate purpose is to demonstrate the strength of Delenn as a character.
0: I think, yeah, I think that that's a fair point. I think this is a a powerful story, but Mm -hmm. it squicks me a bit. Yeah. Well, before we leave uh, the the interrogation storyline here, uh, let's talk about Mira Furlan and Wayne Alexander and their performances in this, and also uh, Bruce Boxleitner once he gets uh, strapped to the rack. You know, I think we probably could uh, have some uh, conversations about uh, who's 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 better in the bondage scenario: uh, Bruce Boxleitner or Christopher Eccleston? I don't know, uh, but I, well, Bruce had his shirt on.
4: That's There's true. a problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, we cannot
0: properly judge this. Uh, so, how about the performances in here? Because I, you know, I, I, w- I was blown away by Wayne Alexander. I thought he was a fantastic
3: performer in this. Agreed. I, I mean, Mira, Mira obviously, it's, uh, one of the strengths of the show, as we were talking about at the beginning of this episode from day one, has been the ambassador actors, the alien actors. And, and, Dylan, as always, I mean, just the the center heart of the show with such range. Mira, just the fantastic range that she gives. And to play off Wayne Alexander, who is able to be arch, but at the same time subtle. I mean, it's weirdly subtle, because I I don't want to say like he's totally subtle. I mean, he's Jack the Ripper, but at the same and inquisiting. But at the same time, it could have, as we know from many guest performances on Babylon 5, gone so much more over the top. (laughs) And he's able to keep it restrained and cruel and sometimes give certain kinds of kindness, and which you know, creepy. Um, while at the same time, she's able to act off of it. And then Bruce was able to come in and be all you know, Sheridan y at him and you know, and and shouty, which is great because you know, the the, one of the things I love about this season is that interplay with Daylin and Sheridan and how he he can play it a certain way she can play it a certain way where she can be strong and then and then in tears and then strong again and he can be strong and then doubtful and then loving and and having that third person in that mix with Wayne Alexander just giving i mean it was it was this this is when the show shines the most when all the actors are just completely on their game and you know because it is basically like we are watching pretty much a one act play with this with this part of the plot Mm-hmm. Where it is just the one room, some spotlights, and three performances, and lesser actors, this could have been disastrous. Yeah, disastrous yeah when scene. Yeah, when it,
0: JMS goes all speechy and mm-hmm. um, sort of one act playish, uh, a lot rides on the acting,
1: and this time it it totally succeeds. Like you all were saying, the the dialogue is you know kind of stagey, um, even in a couple of cases somewhat predictable, but the actors not only carry the dialogue through, but, um, the, when the reaction shots, the, the points when they're not speaking, but they are still so totally in character and conveying so many things. Um, is what carries this through um, the point where, you know, sh- where Sebastian is, you know, hal- yelling at Delin, you know, have you ever considered you were wrong? Have you ever he's totally expecting her to you know stand up and go, no, never. And she turns him completely inside out by saying, you know, yes, actually a lot. Um, I worry about this a lot. And the look on any he, he's not saying a word, but there's just several seconds of his face showing this is new oh my God, this is new. And then knowing his story through the end of the episode, there's like this faint little glimmer of he's almost letting himself hope that he may have found the what the Vorlons have been asking him to look for all this time. It's powerful.
2: Yeah, I, I think that... It- I could not agree more about Sebastian's, his performance, uh, Wayne Alexander's ability to show that kind of subtle surprise buried in the midst of all of the, you know, the, the coldness and the hauteur and stuff. Um, it just, it makes him such a three-dimensional character. He's not just a mustache twirling baddie like Michael said we have had plenty of times in the past. Um, it's just, I, I think the, the performances are all pitched just perfectly during this part of of the episode um you get you you get up towards the top you never get over the top you get the you know the quiet moments when when they're needed I I love the part where um they're sitting Delenn and Sebastian are sitting on the floor it's during one of her little break periods and they're just they're just kind of talking you know sort of like like two people and he's you know explaining something to her and then she's just like all right I've I've had enough of this nonsense she stumbles back into the you know the spotlight the place that she was standing and you know has to pull herself up on the wall to to get back to the place where she's like nope you know we need to continue this because I'm I'm going to make it through she's so Determined, and I—I I hadn't realized. You know, you pointed out that it's—it's it's a little bit stagey, and it could totally be one-act play. And those are things that never occurred to me. Again, kind of like the a plot b plot thing. I think because this episode was just working so well for me on so many levels, and I want to throw a bone in the direction of of direction that was totally mm-hmm. not intended. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was it was wonderful, um, and and I'll, I'll point out some of the stuff that Stephen mentioned when when we were watching it because he uh, as we've mentioned before he is in love with Mike Vehar as as a director and just thinks he's wonderful uh, when we watched this he actually knew right away uh, from almost the very beginning that it was a Mike Vehar episode even before the you know <laughs> during the cold open before the credits uh, you get that crane shot from you know the Narns are standing around in the Zocalo and the, there's a crane shot that that pans up to veer up on the the catwalk above and Stephen was like this has to be a Mike vahar episode and sure <laughs> wow. enough sure enough it was um, and and you also get some like really cool low angle shots of Jakar bargaining with Mister Chase, mm-hmm. the gunrunner. But when we we get to this part of the uh, of the story, it's. Uh Another thing Stephen was saying, the when you get the expositionary dialogue uh, that's taking place as a voiceover as Delenn is approaching the room that she's supposed to be meeting Sebastian in, it just sets the perfect moon for all of this. We don't have somebody just dumping exposition in her lap while we stare at a static shot of them. We get to see Delenn being, you know, she's trepidatious. She's pretty frightened about what she's walking into. And we get to hear her, you know, hear the the explanation of it. At the same time as we're watching her walk, it's it's a nice way to sort of, you know, uh, we're not stretching out time wise and, and we're experiencing a couple different things at the same time. And then you, she walks in and it's this harsh, directional, intense lighting and you get all these different overhead shots that are kind of like spinning around. And I just felt so like wrapped up. It just like swooped me up this story uh, that I didn't notice that it was getting a little bit stagey and that it was, you know, that the there was some speechifying and stuff going on because it just all felt like it was of a piece and it worked.
0: I want to give Lynn the chance for the last word on Delenn and Sebastian, which is a different thing from Bell and Sebastian. And then we will move on because you mentioned the V word, you mentioned Veer, and there's a scene that we've just got to get to as, a, as well as an entire yeah. B plot before we go into a spoiler space. Lynn, final thoughts?
4: Uh, my final thoughts on Sebastian and Delenn is that they, they played incredibly well off one another. And um, the beauty of it is that they both... To a certain extent, underplayed things until it was time not to, um, and understanding when to do that and when to make it very fl- plain that things are horrible is is a hugely important part of pitching that performance. And you know, the other part of this that I think is worth bringing up is the fact that you know, when Sheridan gets tied up finally, he is a he's in the military. He is someone who is trained to withstand torture that's part of his training as a high-level officer who would have, you know, information that someone might want to torture out of him as opposed to Delenn who is part of, who is not part of the warrior caste. This is not in her training. She is withstanding torture in a way that has not been something that she has been led to expect. So, I think that that is a an important contrast to think about when you think about how Sebastian approaches both of them and the fact that they react the way that they do.
0: All right. With that, let us turn our gaze towards the Narn. oh, let's <laughs> and one of the best elevator scenes in Babylon Five, and you get several good oh, yeah. elevator scenes in Babylon Five. but just wow, i this is a scene I have been waiting for, mm-hmm. and I kind of forgot
3: that it was part of this episode, right? yeah, I yeah. had the same I had the exact same a moment where it's like, oh, yeah. That was here the greatest scene in Babylon 5 history.
2: <laughs> That's actually what Stephen says, I think. Is his, he said that this is his favorite episode so far of all of them. And that okay. scene was, was, he thought, just the most amazing scene.
0: Would you believe that this scene was cut on the, uh, on the UK broadcast because of the blood?
2: I would believe it. And I feel very sorry for all the people that watched it that way because they're missing out.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was
3: just the cut.
1: Sla- yeah, him yeah actually just slashing.
3: So it was just like it cut Did his own jump to him bleeding. Mm. At any rate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's argue knee furry for an hour. Well, that doesn't actually make it better. I mean,
4: no. you know, either way, it's still, it's still one of... I mean, what you have is yet another declaration that this is not Star Trek. You will mm-hmm. be called to account for the genocide you are committing. Personally. Mm-hmm. Even if you are not personally the person who did it you've you failed to prevent it and there is moral complicity there for veer which he is trying desperately to wiggle out of and failing miserably
0: yeah he's he feels guilty but he doesn't feel like there's anything he could have done um and he's he, and he's the one who keeps telling uh, lando that he's always got a choice and lando mm-hmm. says no there, i have no choice veer says there there was nothing i could do they wouldn't listen to me and Uh, Jakar just lets him have it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is an important contrast, you know, especially coming on the heels of the long Twilight struggle where we had, you know, Londo, yes, Londo has some doubts and he keeps going forward um, with what he's doing. Veer, of course, has, you know, even more doubts. He's been shouting them to Londo for, you know, for a season now almost. But Veer does the one thing that I don't think any other Centauri that we've seen in the show so far is going to do veer actually makes the gesture to apologize you know yes it gets thrown back in his face because you know words at this time Mm -hmm. don't mean anything but he's still the first centauri we see to do that he's you know it's it's another step forward for veer that you know not only does he see that he's wrong he says you know he says this is wrong he voices it and no other centauri um has been willing to do that
3: well it's nice to see veer you know, transform from being Londo's Jiminy cricket to kind of now becoming <laughs> proactive. And you can just, you know, you're seeing him start of, no, I need to take responsibility for some of this too. I feel that I am culpable, even if it was not my decisions, even if they went against me, you know, cause you know, the scene obviously could have played out with Veer just ignoring him in the in the elevator. He could have just ran from the the whole thing. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. Which would have been interesting in in its own way, just, you know, just seeing... Even before we get to the part where Vervier starts talking, I still think it's a powerful scene because you have him noticing who he's in the elevator with, kind of edging a- away. And Stephen first, I think, has a great performance of just he just looks so uncomfortable. And then you get Andrea Katzulis, yeah, just staring at him, and it just keeps <gasps> mm. cutting back. This is another yep. great piece of direction. Lots mm-hmm. and lots of um, of close-ups and extreme close-ups in this episode from Mike mm-hmm. Behar and and that shot of of Jakar that it just keeps cutting back to. You you know, POV and wow, like he's just that is cold and 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 hot at the same time and so earned, it's just it's wonderful.
0: I also love that when Shannon and I were watching this and Jakar and Garibaldi are having their little conversation about the weapons transfers that are happening on B5, and Garibaldi's having none of it. And I say to Shannon, they're not friends yet. And then immediately as soon as I say that, Garibaldi says, by the way, I know this guy in this place over there. <laughs> and and it's this it's this point where the Babylon 5 characters' opinions of Jakar have completely changed, and we're in the process of changing that opinion as far as the audience is concerned. We've been talking about this evolution of the Narn from the, the Klingons, the bad guys, to something entirely more three-dimensional. And... I just love this transition that mm-hmm. Jakar makes in this episode and how everybody else around him mm-hmm. regards him now. Mm-hmm. It's Andres Castellos gets to do so much. It's such a it's such an increasingly subtle
3: character. And I I, I, just, I it, if, it no his acting gets us yeah, uh, yeah all of us. I, what what the man is doing behind that level of prosthetics and he's just acting mm-hmm. circles around every human being.
2: And, <laughs> you know, and say. talking and talking about other people's uh, reactions to him. I do find it interesting that uh, in the case of Sheridan from sort of a character standpoint uh, he we know that he wants to help the Narn as much as possible because he feels he feels bad about this but I like the sort of like Sheridan is still the guy who's in charge of the station and the guy who's in control. He and and Garibaldi are talking about the fact that it's it's wise to keep Jakar in power because they know him mm-hmm. and if mm-hmm. somebody else takes power that's going to be uh, you know it, Jakar's an unknown quantity mm-hmm. or a known quantity mm-hmm. and Right. have somebody who's unknown. If somebody takes over, so so yes, there's there's you know some some friendship almost blooming with Jakar there, but it's not really a hundred percent friendship. It's it's in part uh, just you know motivated by the need to to keep things running as smoothly as possible, and and it's it's a little bit calculated, but I like that because that's the kind of uh, a character you need to be if you're running a giant mm-hmm. space station. Well, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's real politics. Mo-
4: yeah, it's the most administrative of decisions. I will yeah. take the known entity over whatever. comes— Next every time.
3: Okay, and now I want to take this opportunity to bring up professional wrestling because I, I know it <laughs> okay. usually comes up in your podcast. Um, uh, is, is, is this is it, is it time to talk about the muay? Thai? Is, this, is this TKO time? <laughs> yes, we're going back to TKO, the best episode ever. Um, no, um, in, in wrestling parlance, this is actually in wrestling storytelling what people call a face turn, and it's it's one of the most powerful storytelling things where you can take someone who is the villain and get. First, make that villain like very interesting, the audience fascinated by the villain, and then make it so that things happen that they become sympathetic until finally the entire audience is behind that person and they become a baby face or face, the hero. And watching the... Because I, I feel this is the moment Jakar's face turn is complete. That we are now at that point where, as an audience, we are a hundred... Because, you know, obviously, earlier... Londo is presented as the comical, fun character, and Jakar is kind of being this mischievous, angry thing, and, and person. And mm-hmm. and, and, now, and the
0: Narn were being all the Narn were being the expansionists, and the mm-hmm. Centauri were being the victims. Right. Yeah.
3: Yep. And by the time you are done with, with the elevator scene, I think there is not a single person watching this show who doesn't think, yes, Shakar is one of the greatest characters ever, and he, and he is now my hero, and I love him. Mm-hmm. And you now have other characters starting to react that way. And his just he radiates that strength and dignity. I mean, one thing I noticed um, in this episode, you know, another scene which is not quite as amazing, but is still amazing, you know, when he is talking to the Narn and they are all starting to question him, and question his authority and his leadership. Just how much Andreas just fills, e- barring part, even though it's part of its costume, part of it's also, he just seems like the largest Narn in the room, the focal point, just this this pillar of of strength, but still having this underlying compassion and underlying sensitivity. And it's just such an amazing performance throughout this season It's episode. his
0: second leadership crisis of the season, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he handles it in, en- in an entirely different way. Uh, last time, it was during the war, and uh, and he's like, you've already made the challenge. Do you have the courage to back it up? And they have a fight. This time around, it's quiet confidence and its effectiveness you know i think this entire episode's about leadership yes yeah. um and who deserves mm-hmm. it and how it's earned for jakar it's all about effectiveness for delin and sheridan it's all about motivation you know are you a good leader at heart and this has been i, I love this episode as these all, all three characters uh delin and sheridan and jakar are put through a crucible and they come out pretty darn well. Um I'm going to ask a quick question about Jack the Ripper and when you all knew it was Jack the Ripper. <laughs> did you when did you figure it out or were you did you know going into the episode already that this was an episode with Jack the Ripper in it? But uh um, did it did see. it work and did you like it?
1: If I remember correctly, the the date and the Uh, London address made me sit up and go, huh, really? Would he? And, you know, then, you know, yes, he did. At the end, it was maybe the slightest bit ham-fisted to me, but in comparison to the strength of the rest of the episode, it was not that big a deal to me. But I think I I began to wonder. I'm I'm a big fan of Victoriana and Victorian era history, so I, I was sitting up and taking notice pretty quickly. Lynn?
4: Um, I think that for me, it was similar to Shannon's. Um, it was very much the, he starts rattling off the the address in London and talking about cleaning up. And I went, huh, okay, let's see where this goes. And then uh, when Sheridan requests the database search, that's when I was like, oh, yep, that, they are. And then they confirmed it. And I was like, yep, they did that. That's a thing. Can- okay.
3: <laughs> yeah. So as soon as that line came out about where he was, yeah, I knew. It was just kind of like, yep. And also, the character was just being—he was so, you know, obviously he was not being telegraphed as being a happy-go-lucky, you know, <laughs> you know. This, this, was, this was not, you know, Dick Van Dyke coming down as a chimney sweep from, you know, this was this was very much a I am I am this arch character I am unsettling, and with that, I mean, when, when you when you give dates, some of that either it was going to be Sherlock Holmes, which I don't think we would have a fictional character, and he would have said Baker Street, <laughs> but. Or Jack the Ripper. So it just, yeah, it was an immediate kind of, oh, Jack the Ripper. I mean, my thoughts, though, were, hmm, I'm still forming them, even now. I'm not sure it's the best idea. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And here's the thing, I don't think it's a bad idea. I think the problem for me is that it's a distracting idea. That I see why it was done, I see the point being made with it, but it then becomes the focal point rather than everything else that has happened in this episode the torture mm-hmm. the, the the morality play everything else that we've gone through the character studies then it's all about jack the ripper jack the ripper jack the ripper and i kind of wish it was some other character or even something fully invented
0: that's a that's a plausible thought final thought on the subject for america and then we really need to move into the spoiler <laughs> space
2: um, I tend to be the kind of viewer who is just you know I have my head in the sand so i i, I don 't notice things until they 're they 're put in my face and that 's on purpose because I like that feeling of surprise at the end, so even though I watch this episode you know at, after I'd seen the, most of the rest of the series, I guess I hadn't heard about it. So I didn't know. And I don't remember the date. Uh, you know, I, I thought it was interesting that he had been pulled from Earth a long time ago. I thought that was a cool thing. Uh, and I didn't get it until until the end when Sheridan is, is pointing out the, uh, you know, the murders in the either West End or East End, depending on whether you're reading lips and captions or listening to the ADR that was put in. They obviously got the part of London wrong the first time around. Um, yeah.
1: Straczynski kicked himself so hard when someone finally realized mm-hmm. after recording and editing were done. Yep. Um, so
2: it, it really came as t- to me a really cool surprise. I thought I thought that it was neat. It actually reminded me of I actually have two different Doctor Who comparisons here. Uh, the first one, it reminded me of watching Timelash, which is an episode I will defend. <laughs> Happily, um, because you find out at the end (spoilers for a very old Doctor Who episode). You find out that it was actually H.G. Wells that has been, you know, the annoying guy traveling with them this whole time, and and I w- it was kind of a, a similar thing because I remember being a kid and going, "Oh, oh my God, that's so cool!" and and I had that same sort of feeling here with the uh, with the Jack the Ripper thing, and. I didn't think that it was – I wasn't upset about it. The only bit that I thought was a little bit ham-fisted was his last line talking about, you know, remembered not as a doctor, not as a this, not as a that, not even as Sebastian, remembered only as Jack. I felt like that was a step too far. I think if they would have left out the name Jack, uh, that would have been a little bit more elegant and kind of a a nice way – nice way to do it. Um, but as far as the the fact that it is Jack the Ripper, I, I love it. I think it's important to show that the Vorlons have, you know, we know that they've been visiting Earth for a long time. I like seeing a little bit of evidence of that fact, and some of the the reasoning behind why they did it. They, you know, they they took out this, this guy who was, you know, this kind of awful, terrible element of chaos person, and put him to work to their own ends. And I... I am very glad that they left it until the end of the episode that they didn't point out, clearly at least, uh, that it was Jack the Ripper earlier in the episode, because then I would have I would agree with Michael that it that it would be a, a distracting thing because then the episode becomes about Jack the Ripper. I don't, however, think that it is a distraction, except in your own mind, if you're the kind of person who can't like separate those those two things. It's and this is where my other Doctor Who comparison comes in. I get very annoyed with people who didn't like Clara in Series 7B because she was the impossible girl. The impossible girl thing was entirely in the doctor's head. That was nothing related to what she was doing on screen as a character, and I just judged her as the character I was seeing on screen. So same thing here for me. I love this story. I love seeing the way it played out. The fact that I found out at the end, hey, that was Jack the Ripper, that's kind of a cool thing. But for me, I experienced all of the the feelings and emotions that I that I had while I was watching this story, and nothing's going to take that away. You can't go back in time and, and erase that from from what happened to me. So So I'm I love it. I really think that it's cool. And I I think that that's uh, one of the reasons that this is one of my more favorite episodes is the fact that they put that little exclamation point at the end of it. It's cool.
0: Okay. Uh, I'm going to put my Deb Stanish hat on for a second and ask for final thoughts before we go into the spoiler section. Um, If there anything brief that you'd like to contribute uh, to sort of sum up, comes the Inquisitor. And we'll
1: start with Shannon powerful acting as I said story arcs at, at least the Narn side you know very logically continuing on uh, continuing the uh, major plot threads of the story um, and it worked for me Lynn? Uh,
4: I think for me my final thought is that this this is an episode that very specifically um, telegraphed to me that this is not Star Trek this is these are important journeys where people don't reset and people are affected by what happens to them very deeply and In terms of performances, this is one of the most incandescent episodes of Babylon 5. It is just, it is so... It, it it really does feel at this point like the series is leveling up uh, in terms of performance and in terms of writing and in terms of stakes. Um, and that, for me, was a very, very good thing, as difficult as it was for this to watch this story um, the first time we saw it, which was very much a, why are they being so mean to Delenn? I was really, really not happy the first time I saw it. But <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I see the purpose. And I'm uncomfortable, and I'm willing to sit with that feeling of being uncomfortable, because I think it's important to understanding the series and what the aims of the show overall are.
0: Of which we'll get more into in spoiler space. Erica? Erica?
2: Well, I'm going to start with with two sort of final thoughts from our control group. Uh, as, I, as I said before, Stephen loved this episode um, a great deal from the direction perspective, but I think he, he liked it overall. The two little things from, that he pointed out that I wanted to say is there's a, a fairly obvious prisoner ref- reference in this episode uh, where he's talking about being you know, stamped, numbered, delineated by others, et cetera. That's an echo of, of a line from the prisoner, which mm-hmm. I, I myself caught as well. So it wasn't just Stephen. Uh, and then the, uh, the scene at the beginning, when Sebastian is arriving on a Vorlon ship and uh, Sheridan comes up with some random flunky uh, earth, earth Force guy and, and Sheridan's like, no, 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 you know, I'll, I'll take care of this. You can go. And the guy's like, are you sure? Steven was just kind of shaking his head going, I miss Lou Welch. That guy should have been Lou Welch. <laughs> 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 Lou Welch would have known what was going on. So Steven is, Steven is sad that we, that we didn't have any Lou Welch here. Um, my final thought. As is, are we all. Aren't we? Aren't we all? It's very sad. Um, but my final thought is, is just one thing that we didn't really touch on too much because there isn't a ton to touch on. But I admit that I am scouring every single one of these episodes for every single Dylan and Sheridan interaction, because I think they are just adorable the way they're kind of, I don't know, dancing around each other, like you're not quite mm-hmm. sure exactly what the relationship is. But that's what makes it so fun. Um, so I love the beginning. Uh, where We're Dylan is asking to have Sebastian pass through customs and and Sheridan just says, you know, asking is not a problem, not for you. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, oh. And then you see them, you know, sort of being brought together a a little bit more after, you know, they have these – kind of terrible experiences that, that pulled them together, you know, Delenn going in and watching all the markab die, and then now her being tortured and, and him coming in and also being tortured and, and getting through it together. And I just, yeah, every, every scene between the two of them just has me kind of on the edge of my seat going, what's going to happen here?
3: And finally, Michael. Well, first, I want to thank you for giving us such a happy-go-lucky, fun, you know, Rompy episode. I, I, I'm to, sorry,
0: Jason took all of the ones with genocide. And, you know.
3: <laughs> so to be fair, we did not get a child getting killed in ours. That is true. That is Jason's specialty, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, no, uh, I think yeah, this gets back to Babylon Five has some major strengths, and I think you know, in that it is op- you know it is operatic, and if you buy into loving operatic things you know, there are certain actors who get it. And this was, everyone was on fire. Everyone was able to get all those speeches out nearly to perfection. And, you know, I was on the, you know, I was upset. I was, I was charmed. I was mad. I was everything. I mean, it was a roller coaster of an episode. And, and to, to touch on something, Erica, did, certainly the first time Lynn and I watched it, we, we did spend the entire season, especially by this point, Every time Sheridan and Delyn do something that is, like, close to each other, we would get excited. Because, you know, at this point, yeah, we are building the ship. <laughs> oh, that Delyn <laughs> sheridan ship that we are sailing. Well,
4: at this point, I'm already frustrated because they haven't kissed yet. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's where Lynn goes. Bring it, yeah. but Like,
4: like this...
1: They should be kissing by now.
4: Don't just hug. (laughs) That was a really horrible
1: thing. (laughs) But they're an ambassador and a captain. They're an ambassador and a captain.
3: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a kissing show. Well, uh,
0: we need to move on to our spoiler section before this becomes longer than the episode itself. Um, Actually, I think that ship already sailed.
1: Um, (laughs) Have you not heard our podcast before, Chip? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, come on. Everybody does it. The Incomparable. Come on. Okay.
0: Uh, But uh, before we go into the spoiler section, uh, next time we have a season finale for you. So your homework is The Fall of Night. And the the less said in advance of that, the better. Uh, You can join us for our conversation threads at the Audio Guide website at b5audioguide.com. You can download our episodes on iTunes, of course, and wherever you can find good podcasts. And we tweet and we tumble at b5audioguide. Lynn and Michael, thank you so much for being part of this section of the podcast. And let us now jump into spoiler space for the next section. And we're out of the jump gate, and we are able to talk uh, about spoilers to our heart's content. Um, Lynn and Michael, have there been any spoilers (laughs) that you've just been dying to talk about before uh, that you
3: just couldn't? All of them, Chip. All of them.
4: (laughs) Well, mostly I'm just irritated that I couldn't talk about you know Sheridan and Delenn getting all smoochy. Well, didn't smooch. I mean, it's just. But that. that (laughs) No, but they should (laughs) have. And I can't talk about it before spoilers in the context of because I know they will. Yeah. You know.
0: Eventually they will. A long time from now. I practically know, so an entire season from now.
4: It's basically like moonlighting syndrome all over again. <laughs> oh, yeah. No,
3: no. The, 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 the hardest things, I think, for this episode it was also holding back on, aha, the Vorlons are just as bad as anything else. You know, it was yeah. very hard to kind of not and, reveal.
0: And that. Kosh. And Kosh, the good Vorlon, the only <laughs> good Vorlon it seems, is the one who put uh, Delyn through all this. Exactly. Yes,
3: because if you want any more, because I don't. That was the, like having Jack the Ripper be the Inquisitor was the least subtle hint that the Vorlons may be shady. <laughs> <laughs> hint, hint, everybody at home. <laughs> Maybe the Vorlons are not great. It's but. kind of
0: well timed, I think, because uh, we've been getting all this stuff about an army of light and. Um, Everybody's standing against the darkness and we know that Delin's a good person and Garibaldi and Sheridan and all of this stuff. You know? So we've just had this rah-rah scene in the previous episode where uh, the Sheridan is introduced to the Rangers and Kosh is there and everything's great, right? Let's make things a little gray the very next episode. I like that. <laughs> it is very good. Yeah, I think it was it was a great time for that. I think to start off our spoiler discussion in depth, I, I have to go to the first thing that Lanier says to Sheridan after uh, Sheridan asks what's wrong, what he needs to do. And Lanier says, defy Kosh. That is, you know, it, it, just out of the mouth of mouths of babes, you know, that one line, defy Kosh. That is exactly what uh, Sheridan is going to be called on to do all the way up here in seer- season four defy kosh uh this leads right into well you're a legend too after he after kosh told him that he had to fight legends uh we've we've already been talking about the big elephant in the room which is the vorlons are bad and sebastian is bad and this just sort of lines up perfectly so was anybody else feeling like we should have been seeing the vorlons as bad guys all along or was this just revealed at the right time
2: I think it was at the right time. I think you need to build up to something like that. I, I think that when it finally comes along and we finally learn the truth about the Vorlons, I think it's kind of a nice shock. And it's not, like, it's not a huge shock because they give you hints to it, but if they had introduced it too heavily up front, A, it wouldn't make sense for our heroes to be joining forces with the Vorlons the way that they do, and then B, you wouldn't have that cool moment of the turn later on down the road. Mm-hmm.
3: I think this gets way back to the beginning of the of the old Jakar about nothing nobody on Babylon five being what they seem. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Well
4: and also it it, yeah. it ties into the thematic the thematics of the fact that the more power that you have, the more easily one is corrupted. Um, and that is something that we see over and over and over again, and it's talked about in the series. So when you when you realize just how much power the Vorlons have, eventually you are supposed to deduce that they too are corrupt. Or could be. Or could be. Um, and this is the first sort of hint that we see of that.
3: But it, it's a nice, the way the show kind of quietly moves from character to character to make that, re- and, and, and race to race, to, to make that reveal of, and here's the thing you don't expect about this person. I think it's just their turn. When
0: I also think that this episode is really helpful in um, introducing the new Kosh down the road. He's never called by name in the in the show, just ancillary material. But when Olkesh comes uh, onto the show um, in his little purple Kosh suit, and uh, is so much more of a jerk to Lita Alexander, mm-hmm. you know this. The fact that. The Vorlons have a guy named Sebastian who is equally jerky, equally manipulative. Having this sets up that very nicely, I think. Um, If we had not have this episode, then when Evil Kosh showed up, it might have been... I don't think we would have been as prepared for that, I don't think. Shannon, you're very quiet.
1: (laughs) Um, Just the the echoes of, who are you? Just keep... Sounding like drum beats in my head. We, we've had the shadows representative go around asking everyone, What do you want? Here is the mirror question, even though we don't quite realize it yet, because that is the, something that Sebastian keeps coming back to as he interrogates Delenn. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Um, you know, identify yourself. Tell me, you know, all the things that make you you, but you can't use any other references. You have to get to the essence. Um, it's an impossible task. It's it's impossible to, you know, define to their standards what, who they are, but, and just that they keep pounding away at it like they're, like there's going to be some kind of resolution. Sebastian really is Morton, isn't he?
2: He is. Yeah. Actually, the, the whole question thing is, is just another sort of notch in the uh, in the bedpost when it comes to looking at the the, the similarities between the Shadows and, and the Vorlons. You had Morden walking around asking, what do you want? Well, now we've got the flip side, which is the Vorlons version of that question, which is, who are you? And when you get right down to it, neither one is a particularly great question to have to answer.
0: Uh, especially since, you know, you're getting hammered with this single question all the way through it and you're not being given any time to consider the alternative question. You know, it's, 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 it is this one question. It is this one thing. The shadows and the Vorlons are trying to assert an absolutist worldview on everybody in the galaxy. It's just as oppressive. I think for Morden to ask, what do you want repeatedly of Londo as for, um, as for Sebastian to ask, who are you, repeatedly, uh, to Delin, I think maybe the one difference being that what do you want is a question that elicits elicits a certain amount of desire, greed, and it's what prompts Londo to lose his way. Mm-hmm.
3: Though effectively in both cases, I mean, that's the thing, you know, there you have Morden and Londo, and here you have Sebastian Lin. but it still comes down to Two sides of the same coin. The Vorlons, when you start stripping things away, they're going to use Daylin the way Morden had used Londo. They want her and her race to be their major player in this, in this chess game they're playing with the other one.
2: And really, the question itself, when you get to the heart of it, yes, the what-do-you-want question has to do with desire, but so does the who-are-you question, the way that mm-hmm. Sebastian is asking it, and and the thing that he's trying to get at with that question is actually to find out if she has any, any greed, and it's not a material greed so much as greed for renown and, mm-hmm. you know,
3: power. Though so even darker to that, if you strip away with, with the later knowledge, it's almost the Vorlons that- Double-checking, your loyalty to us and our cause is absolute, and you have nothing else personal about this. It's merely a devotion to us and our great celestial cause. Mm-hmm. The cause of order. Mm-hmm. That's
0: right. Uh, we're always the most upset about somebody uh, being full of themselves when they also disagree with us. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about Sheridan and Delenn right from the outset, but let's uh let's let's dive into it. If it wasn't obvious before that they're on a romantic arc, I mean, I don't see how you could look at this any other way. The way they sort of fall into each other's arms at the end of the interrogation and as they walk out arm in arm, you could look at that as close friendship. Uh, But that's not really how television worked back in the day. Um, And, you know, Shannon and I have had many the argument over um, Harry Potter back in the day. (laughs) Um, And uh, I was always, she was always a true believer in that Harry and Hermione were destined to be a couple. And I was always feeling so warm and fuzzy about the fact that uh, some of the close non-romantic friendships that I'd had in real life were ap- appeared to be mirrored uh, with Harry and Hermione. Would this episode have been just as strong if Sheridan and D'Lynn hadn't been set up to be on a romantic arc? Um, if, say, Sinclair came back later and uh, was part of the storyline for good and the original plan to put them together would have been there? Yeah. Does this episode depend on them <laughs> being a romantic pairing? um, I actually
4: think it does. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason that I think it does is because the entire next three seasons basically are set up so that what you see is that, as in all sort of power couples, the collective of the two of them is greater than the individual holes. And so when you have Dylan and Sheridan together functioning as a team, they are capable of so much more. Um, They are capable of convincing people to do things that really are quite against their own best interests for the greater good they need to have a level of trust with one another to function that way that that in storytelling terms requires a romantic relationship if we're assuming heteronormativity at least Um, intimacy at least intimacy it 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 requires a level of intimacy and we see that that friendship and respectful intimacy building over the course of this season but this is the first time where we see them cross physical boundaries because for the most part delen and sheridan have been up until now very careful about not touching one another really in any way shape or form other than occasionally shaking hands there's very little touching
0: she she held his hand uh before going into the markab space in confessions and lamentations other than that you're right it's
4: but this is again that's because she thought she was going to die um it's it is only under the threat of death that they finally start to demonstrate affection physically for one another um, and so I, th- I think that that one of the reasons that this episode is so powerful is in retrospect, you see it as the beginning of them acknowledging that they need one another functionally in life to be better.
3: But it, yeah, I mean, imagine if this was like Garibaldi and Sheridan in this episode.
4: Well, that's a different ship, honey. <laughs> well, uh,
3: I think that that's a ship one has to work hard to get to.
4: I don't think so. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with everything that you
2: just said, Lynn. However, I I do think that that only works in retrospect. Oh, I yeah. I think, you know, the, coming to the, the original question, does the episode depend on that? I don't think so. I think that as an episode, you, you'd you still have a great story with Delenn. Um, and I just, I like the idea that she really would give up her life for anybody. It doesn't have to be shared in there the only reason that we need shared in in there is to serve their narrative and what's coming later but as far as an actual episode the way that it works i think it would work just as well with anybody else in that position and in fact i think it might have even worked a little bit better in some ways had it been somebody that she didn't have such a personal stake in you know because even at this time we can kind of tell where things are going so it, it may have even shown her willingness to sacrifice a bit more had it not been Sheridan in that position
1: Yeah, I I kind of I kind of lean with with Erica on this one that this isolated particular episode does not depend on the romantic relationship. It hints at it. It nudges the pieces a little bit closer together. Um, I think it's crucial
0: to the romantic relationship. Yeah,
1: it's the the other way around. The relationship depends on this episode. (laughs) Yeah, I would agree with it, putting it that way. I still think that the
3: viewer is going to have a stronger reaction because of what they've been seeing building over the course of the season than if it had just been a random, you know, if, if, it, if it had been, let, you know, if...
4: Well, let's put it this way. If it had been If Lanier, it had been Zack.
3: No, well, Lanier would be... Would be Lanier you know, she would be, be
4: a sense of service and duty as a Minbari.
3: There's also a very deep bond but between it, those yeah, two. Yeah,
4: exactly. And Lanier's story would have turned out so completely differently had that been the case. <laughs> um, but... I think that the reason it's emotionally powerful is because it's Sheridan and they have this—they have this established mutual respect and deep friendship for each other. I think this is the beginning of their romantic relationship, certainly. Um, but I don't know that, say, if it had been Garibaldi who turned up, that it would have had the same emotional resonance. I think that that emotional intimacy that that Sheridan and Delenn had been building through this season as they work effect, together right? is why it's is one of the main reasons why Sheridan turning up and having the events turn out the way that they did is so effective. I don't think it would have been as effective if it was someone else. If it had been Veer or or Garibaldi or Zach, I, I don't think that would – or even Ivanova. I don't think it would have worked very well. Also because I think Ivanova would have just hauled off and punched Sebastian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I – th- I will agree that this is the beginning of the relationship. In retrospect, this is deeply important to the relationship. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. it is the foundational episode in terms of establishing them as a romantic ship.
0: Yeah, agreed. And this and this episode uh, pretty much highlights that this is a show built for shippers. Would you not? Yep. Would you, I mean the romantic arc is part of the spine of Babylon mm-hmm. Five. Which makes yeah. it all the more amazing that they were able to keep it when you have to change your lead Hector.
3: Yes, but yeah. you know, once again, with yeah, I, the still I'm wrapping my head around the Sinclair Delyn, I don't
4: thing think it, working, I don't think it would have worked as well. because the
3: chemistry that was just not that chemistry.
2: See, whereas yeah, I think it would have, I think it would have worked a little bit better in some ways. And don't get me wrong, I adore Sheridan and Delyn, but just the fact that they had this kind of weird push pull relationship building up all the way through the first season. I I don't know that it would have worked with Michael O'Hare in the role simply because I I just don't know that uh, okay. that their their chemistry would have would have pulled it off. But just from a character standpoint, that uh, extra history there that might have worked for me.
3: Okay, I, I agree with you with character concept, but Michael O'Hare is still Michael is still Sinclair, so it's hard to, yeah, another mm-hmm. actor as Sinclair that is a cleaner through line. Yeah,
4: I think I just don't think but, that... I don't think that that.
3: But the O'Hare chemistry with Miracle was just.
2: Then again, we never saw. We never saw Sinclair and transformed Delenn, and transformed Delenn is a very yeah, different Delenn than true. what we saw in the first season. yeah, that's season, not going to happen so for
1: another season and a half. So, it
2: is po- it is possible that that it w- that there would have suddenly been chemistry there just because mm-hmm. of that change.
3: So, and and it, he did improve in the role over the course of season one. So, it is also possible that had mm-hmm. he not been battling the things he was battling health wise, that he would have settled down in the role more. He would have understood television acting a little bit better, and maybe it would have.
0: It's possible. And I thought that he and uh, Mira Furlan had decent chemistry in War Without End uh, coming up. Um, but yeah. Yeah. but I think the biggest issue there is that uh, Sinclair and Delin when you get to know them in season one, they are old friends. They already have trust with each other. He finds out that uh, she's Grey Council and that introduces a little bit of tension between them, but they 're already you know basically they 're already buds mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's like if if that had turned into a romantic arc, it might have been dreadfully boring because where do you yeah. s- you 're already <laughs> starting from some place you 're going from five to from level five to level ten, Sheridan and Delin get to know each other and you mm-hmm. see that relationship uh go through all the stages there's more there's more dynamism to it.
3: Yeah, there's There's a little bit more tension. And you would also miss the Lanier tension, I think, if it had been Sinclair. I think Lanier being tense around someone who is so human, you know, as, <laughs> as, as Sheridan versus the Sinclair who, as it's been pointed out, was already becoming almost like a Minbari. Yeah, mm-hmm, he was already sure. there.
4: Yeah, um, well, and you know, let's let's be blunt. Bruce Boxleitner can generate chemistry with a potted plant if he wants to. I He's too. that good <laughs> of an actor, television wise. <laughs> so it, there is, I mean, there is something to be said for the interplay between the two actors because that does make a big difference when mm-hmm. as to whether on-screen pairings work. Now, sometimes you end up with on-screen pairings where the chemistry that they have is that they, you know, they absolutely hate each other as people. But but that spark works on screen in a different context. You're um,
0: Bruce Willis's and Sybil Shepherds.
4: Exactly. Yes, you're Bruce Willis and Simple Shepherds, or you're Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze, to to name another rather infamous hmm. um, pairing where they did not get on as people, but you would never be able to tell that from the film they did together. Um, I think that in this case, there's a level of comfort with Box Lightner that Mira has that I don't think she had with with Michael O'Hare. It I, I just... I find it very difficult to think of Sinclair and Delenn together. It's not, I can't, I I can make Garibaldi and just about anybody in my head work together. Like Garibaldi (laughs) and Jakar. I can make that work, but I cannot make Sinclair. I cannot make Sinclair and Delenn work. I just can't.
3: Oh, Lynn we'll keep you away from certain. (laughs) My
4: ship engine just doesn't do that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, a couple of other points that I want to mention, uh, really quickly. Um, I think that, uh, the interchange between Veer and Jakar in the elevator is a perfect uh mm-hmm. jumping off point for Veer's eventual underground railroad. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's so he find, he he does do something, and that's mm-hmm. going to be that's going to be lovely to see.
1: Brahmo Linconi.
3: <laughs> I was gonna say I think we're finally seeing I mean we're definitely seeing the solidification of Emperor Veer here. Where suddenly it's like Okay, you know, we're, we're felt like almost a cheap gag earlier, the idea of him being emperor. It's like we are starting to see, and we saw it with him and Morden, too. But just is the strength within Veer and and bravery. I mean, because that was that apology is actually a very brave moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, Shikar could have just pulled out the knife and and t- t- taken him down right there. They are they yeah. are effectively mortal enemies, but he still had the strength of his convictions and deepness you know that deep sorrow and you know he he known they had done wrong
4: well this is this is the version of veer that we firmly believe can absolutely kill morden and put his head on a spike no problem yeah
1: (laughs) yeah it totally um works as as a stepping point for for veer to you know not only you know does he feel like moved to you know say something to apologize to make the gesture and but you know jakar's reaction tells him it, it, it's not enough i've got mm-hmm. to figure out how to put these words these thoughts into action yeah and then you know somehow or other he hits on the idea of the underground railroad and gets all mm-hmm. of those narn out to safety um that um and that and yeah proves the um potential for the leadership down the line
3: yeah and and we are definitely seeing once again in retrospect oh uh, chip am i jumping on a jakar question already too <laughs> oh go right ahead go right ahead I mean, because we are finally seeing that also the movement of Jakar becoming that center holy man that he is going to be to the, to the mm-hmm. Narn.
0: This is such a good Jakar episode. And, yes, uh, it is. Uh, Andreas Katsula's man, um, he, he does it all. And I'm so glad to see the beginning. At, at, in, in the end, Jakar becomes such a fabulous character. And he was always designed to be that fabulous character, and only now do we really see it coming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention was last week or last week's episode, uh, Sheridan was introduced to the Rangers, and no better time like the present. Let's put him to use. Uh, let's give them an order. And I I just like the fact that uh, Sheridan wastes no time. He he takes charge. He gives an order. Garibaldi's skeptical, and he says, "Nope, let's go ahead and do it." He is so easily into his role as what who who is going to become the the uh commander of the army of light coming up, so I like to see that the Rangers are already a presence,
2: yep, definitely it's it I hadn't thought about the fact that he puts them to work so soon after he finds out about them but yeah you're absolutely right that that fits right in with the character of sheridan as we know him he's going to use all the resources that he has mm-hmm. at his beck and call and he's you know excited and enthusiastic about yeah. it if if you know i mean in a business-like sort of mm-hmm. way but you can tell that he you know have got a new toy let's put it through its paces yep. except mm-hmm. for
3: except for drawl's machine which occasionally gets forgotten
2: well yes there's that
3: <laughs> yeah <laughs>
4: They're saving it for when they need it. He's,
2: al- he's also a smart enough, smart enough leader and military tactician yeah. to know that you keep your, your really, really big guns in your back pocket until you absolutely need them.
3: So, though that, that may be my favorite thing of reading the Lurker's Guide as we watch the first time through is watching the running argument between Babylon 5 fandom and JMS over mm-hmm. why, are we not, why are they not using the damn machine?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> why don't they use it for this? Reasons. <laughs> How about this time? reasons i know what i'm doing <laughs> yeah yeah there's
0: there's really there's really only so much you can do and we, we sort of had this argument on the podcast uh, not so much an argument a discussion on the podcast a while back mm-hmm. That you know there that there's only so much that the great machine can actually do once you're out of its orbit so that's my True. that's that's my story and i'm sticking to it it's anyway. a good story <laughs> because
3: clearly it's not shown that it can communicate across the universe or has that potential and why would you use it then to communicate with narn
1: mm-hmm
3: yeah okay smart ass
0: <laughs> oh any other thoughts about uh, how this episode uh, sort of fits into the wider picture and the episodes that are to come
4: can I just say poor Lanier poor yes poor <laughs> Because this yeah. is this is the beginning of the uh, this is this is the beginning of seeing where Lanier's arc is going to go. If if Delenn is all about the right person at the right time for the right reasons, Lanier is the right person at the right time for the wrong reasons, and that mm-hmm. is why he ends up with such a horrible tragedy. That is why he that is why his end is his end because he does things for the wrong reasons, and to watch him struggle now. And to, and to know that where that arc is headed is just so sad.
3: Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the one where it's like, okay, like this episode is the Vorlons. That's pretty well signposted right now. That the subtle Lanier stuff that's going on already with Lanier talking about he because he during his speechifying to Sheridan, you know, at the beginning, as the Inquisitor coming, of uh, explaining the whole how tragic it is when you do things for the wrong reasons. It's it's like at the t- first watch, I had no idea that that's. That that's a little bit of foreshadowing for his character, or mm-hmm. a lot of foreshadowing because it just kind of went over me. Though in retrospect, it's like, oh yeah, <laughs> oh Port Lanier.
2: Yeah, I have that on my list too. Just noticing how worried he is about about Dylan, and you know, all the other times I've watched Babylon Five, I've never actually seen the Lanier hints. His his turn at the end has always pretty much just come out of nowhere and hit me and been like this doesn't look like it was planned for very well so this time through I'm watching really closely and trying to see things and I'm wondering if I'm if if they are really things that were planted in there on purpose to as a plan or if they're just things I'm trying to read that way because I want it to make more sense than it did the first few times I saw it. It's tough
3: because yeah. we're Doctor Who fans. We're trained to do that. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: yeah. Pla- planned or not? I mean, I, I it was. It wouldn't have been very hard, you know, a couple seasons down the line. JMS clearly establishes how devoted Lanier is to to Delenn, and, you know, having that devotion in place, period, makes it a whole lot easier, you know, come season five to, you know, tilt Lanier this way, and he stays a, you know, devoted follower and faithful friend and tilt him that way, and no, he tries to kill Sheridan, so... (laughs) Yeah. Oops. yeah, which
4: is, again, why this episode is so important, because this is this is the signposting of the beginning of mm-hmm. Delenn and Sheridan's relationship, which is the thing that sends Lanier off the farm. Uh, in it terms saves of, the universe. Sa- it saves the universe. But Lanier is a major sacrifice in the act of saving the universe, yeah. mm-hmm. because this is what tips him over to the to to, you know, this is what tips him over to attempting to kill Sheridan mm-hmm. is this relationship. Because his love for Delenn is not so great that he won't try to kill her boyfriend.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and I just have to shake my head a little bit of uh, that because it's it happens so suddenly in that one episode. The execution
3: leaves a little something to be desired. That I yeah. agree with. But yeah. then again, if, if we were staying on this podcast every week, which would be, of course, not happening because that would be foolish and too busy. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, season five is a season that I have issues with all over the place where i think executions are not as smooth as they could have gone
0: yeah i think
2: you're I, not alone in that and yeah that's, but, that's kind of a fair assessment
0: it, yeah. it's not a it, that's not a controversial opinion i i don't hate <laughs> season five um i don't go into like a star wars prequels rage no, over it no 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 but uh <laughs> well, but it has lynn, issues lynn nearly did with byron but that's
4: <laughs> Byron is rage-inducing just on principle, frankly. <laughs> uh,
0: mental note, I know when to invite you back.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm about to have a... I, I, will, I will present you with a very long rant about how hair does not an actor make. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Any other spoilery bits before we take our leave?
4: I noticed two
2: little things. Um, just one that we... This takes place in Grey 19, um, yeah. So mm-hmm. g- the gray sector is is going to pop up again. And then also the fact that, that it's our, our first um, look at Wayne Alexander, who comes back as like five different characters. Yeah, in that's what I was going to say.
0: Mm-hmm. Principally yeah. Lorian.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. we're going to see Wayne Alexander under lots of different alien makeups.
3: <laughs> so comes the Inquisitor. A good one, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I would I, yeah. would I would say if I was ranking things, this is a top 10 episode for me. Mm-hmm. Top. Okay.
0: A top ten episode, which is largely talky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Babylon Five does pretty well with awful, difficult to watch interrogation episodes. I
2: think.
1: Yeah, this one. I just I was looking at the lurkers guide. This is something we could have brought up uh, pre-spoiler. Uh, this one actually was nominated for an Emmy in cinematography. Yeah. Oh wow.
0: I can see that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Um, Mike
1: Vejar. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, cinematography would have been Flynn. Uh, right, Flynn, but I mean, but, you
2: don't get the good cinematography right. if you don't have a good director telling mm-hmm. you where to put the camera and what to do with it.
3: Yep, yeah. yep. They made a good team. Mm-hmm. All right.
2: indeed.
0: Lynn and Michael, Damian Thomas, thank you so much for being part of this exhaustive <laughs> episode <laughs> of the right. Audio Guide to Babylon 5. I, I would going. like to
3: mention, have you heard our other podcasts? This yeah. is, this is <laughs> the this way is it rolls. This being
4: restrained. <laughs>
0: This is this is a guy this is a guy who hosts a podcast that theoretically goes for about 2 minutes so I'm 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 a little twitchy when we
3: run over an hour.
4: <laughs> Thank you for having us. Thank it was a pleasure to be here.
3: Thank you so much for having us and hopefully we set the record.
0: Uh, it's been wonderful to have you um, and I think I, I have no doubt that we'll have some longer episodes down the line uh, possibly even the next one uh, Erica the baton is yours for the fall of night
1: alright ooh so Does
0: anything happen in that one
1: well you know right <laughs> after deciding things. that the Vorlons are all evil we get Kosh popping up as an angel that's true dun dun dun, dun. talk about mixed messages
3: and the passing of our favorite season 2 character
0: you know I'm watching Star Wars The Force Awakens and I'm thinking to myself man Warren Keffer you wish you were Poe Dameron
3: right (laughs) so why could he have not been that
0: oh but that'll be next time we'll dance on Keffer's grave next time but until (laughs) then uh, please check out the spoiler threads and uh, share your thoughts at b5audioguide.com And we will talk to you in two weeks. This is Chip in Durham.
2: Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham.
0: And you have been listening. Oh, God, you have been listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5.